How did we get to where we are today? What do you mean science is saying there's no God? Science can't remotely say anything to that effect. And it just started these culture wars that we see so inflamed today. Science and theology, neither of them are comprehensive explanations. The best scientific explanation for how Homo sapiens came to be is the theory of evolution. Times it felt like an inquisition that uh, culminated in my having to leave the college. Well, then let's talk about vaccine. Politicized, where in the halls of Congress, it was which party was hoping to blame the other one the most for the biggest problem. Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast from the Oak Guild Institute. I have never had much interest in faith versus science debates. They simply did not resonate with me. I believe God created the world, but I never felt the need to nail down the details or method of creation. Then along came COVID-19. That was written by Tish Harrison Warren. Which side of the vaccine or mask debate are you on? And have you lost respect for someone from your own political party, religion, or family who disagrees with you? White evangelicals refuse to get vaccinated more than any other religious group, 30 to 40% of them. So why are Christians and Republicans, as this group is often associated with, seemingly so anti-science? And on the flip side, why do some prominent scientists like Richard Dawkins seek to prove God does not exist? I'm Kate Whitehead of the Oak Guild Institute. In this podcast, my OGI colleague Jake Chaco interviews Jim Stump of BioLogos. BioLogos is a nonprofit led by evangelical Christians seeking to bridge the gap between science and Christian beliefs. To be honest, similar to Ms. Warren, before listening to this interview, I all but dismissed the need for the topic. I sided with the agnostic Einstein when he said, Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. To me, science explains the how, and Christianity, or other religions, explain the why. But as I listened to the interview you are about to hear, Jake and Jim went beneath the surface to identify the real conflict between science and Christianity in the United States today, and it completely altered my thinking. Before we get to that interview, here is a bit of history and context. Many people credit the Renaissance in Europe with bringing about modern science, including formalizing the scientific method. The patronage and authority of Christians encouraged a spirit of inquiry and discovery through founding and funding of schools, universities, and hospitals over the centuries. Part of the Catholic Church's current catechism states, since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind, God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodical research in all branches of knowledge provided is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God. The scientific revolution began with the field of astronomy and Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century. Copernicus developed a comprehensive heliocentric theory, noting the Earth and other planets revolve around the sun. Copernicus was actually encouraged in these studies by Pope Clement VII before he formally published in 1543. However, the relationship between science and the church was complex and ever-changing. 
In the 17th century, a fear continued that scientific discoveries challenged conventionally held Christian beliefs and biblical evidence. Galileo used his telescope to provide more evidence of Copernicus's theories that the Earth revolved around the sun. Despite Galileo's professed belief in God and agreeing to present this as merely a theory or idea, he was sentenced to house arrest for heresy. The church stated the Bible claimed the sun and other beings passed over the earth, which was at the center of the universe. It's interesting to note that the Pope believed Galileo was mocking him in his published works, so that might have been another contributing factor to his arrest. Just saying, don't insult the Pope. The synergy and tension between the church and science continued in Europe with scientists like Newton, Boyle, Pascal, who were prominent in physics, chemistry, and math. Genetics and evolution were explored by folks like Mendel, who was a monk performing his experiments at a monastery, and Darwin, who had intended to return from his voyage on the Beagle to religious studies and clergy position in the church, though he never took it up. In the New World, or U.S. as we like to call it, despite separation of church and state in the Constitution, science and Christianity continued together with a strong Protestant culture of education and hard work. Half of the current top 10 universities in the U.S., including Stanford and Harvard, were founded with explicit religious intent and with money from Christian churches. However, just like the Catholic churches falling out with some scientists in the 16th and 17th centuries, the renewed partnership in the U.S. between many Christian Protestant churches and scientific progress came to a fairly abrupt halt in the 20th century. The Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 put a public school teacher in Tennessee on trial for teaching human evolution. This trial highlighted a societal divide that still exists today, where fundamentalists said the Word of God, as revealed in the Bible, took priority over other human knowledge that was being explored and researched by scientists. And later, young Earth creationists started work to prove the age of the Earth is between six and 10,000 years old, and that God created humans in our present form at that time. Fact check. While we cannot repeat and prove human history in a laboratory, the vast majority of scientists, particularly in the relevant field of geology, agree based on carbon testing and other evidence that the Earth is more than 4.5 billion years old. 200,000-year-old human remains of modern human variety have been found. But what both sides can agree on is that human civilization with agriculture and records of a kind did probably begin in the last 10,000 years. So on one side, we have creationists pushing back on new scientific discoveries and theories. On the flip side, there are many in the scientific community who eschew the need for religion at all. Richard Dawkins contends belief in a personal God qualifies as a delusion. He said, when one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. So that brings us to today. BioLogos was founded in 2007 to bridge the divide between the Christian faith and the scientific community. Interpolarization of the United States over the last decade, and then the pandemic with you know what follows. And BioLogos has quickly found their biggest critics were not the scientific community, but the evangelical Christian tribe they claim to be a part of. So why is that? Well, to answer, I turn it back to Jake to introduce his guest properly and explore this matter further. I'm Jake Chaco of the Oak Guild Institute. I'm delighted to have my guest, Jim Stump, uh, to unpack um, this whole discussion between faith and science. And interestingly, the subject of Tish Harrison Warren's uh, article was Deb Harsma, 
who is a scientist and the president of the BioLogos organization. And Jim is a colleague of uh, Deb's. Jim is also a philosopher, so in many senses, I am looking forward to this discussion, which will get not just into science, but also the philosophy of science, because when you have such an esoteric debate, quote, debate as science versus faith, there are elements of philosophy that come in. So, Jim, uh, welcome to this OGI podcast. And before we launch into it, tell us a little bit about yourself, BioLogos, and how you came to be associated with BioLogos. Well, thanks, Jake. Good to be here with you. Um, yes, you are correct. I am a philosopher by training. It wasn't always that way. I started off in my educational path uh, in science education. My father was trained as like a junior high science teacher. He went on to become an administrator for most of his career, but always gave uh, me and my siblings the kind of orientation toward the natural world that it's a good thing and that we ought to explore it and investigate it. We were also Christians in a very conservative slice of uh, American evangelical Christianity in the Midwest. And I never myself felt those two things uh, in much in much conflict until I got to college and went to a small Christian college and had people telling me that this is the way you ought to understand science. And I was a little suspicious of that, but was interested in uh, questions of faith, of science, how they interact, and ultimately that became philosophy. So I went to graduate school in philosophy and uh, really emphasized the philosophy of science. And when I was doing my PhD, I kind of wanted to do something related to science and religion, but they told me, no, you can't really do that. You can do something on how science and philosophy are related to each other. So that's what I did in a dissertation and looked a lot at the scientific revolution and how these two uh, interacted with it, with each other, but always with an eye toward trying to get a better handle on science and religion. Became a philosophy professor at that same college I attended and uh, then got involved with BioLogos when President Deb Harzma, whom you mentioned, became president and moved the organization from uh, sunny San Diego to uh, overcast Grand Rapids, Michigan, and not many of the staff from San Diego wanted to move along with the organization. So she needed to find some new new people. And that's when I first uh, first got involved and uh, have uh, been here since 2013 now and really enjoy my work. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Jim. So science and religion, or as Tish says, a science and faith, but you came at it because maybe the, the mentors to be in ac academic world said it should be science and philosophy. So we're going to get into science and faith, maybe back into it via science and philosophy. But tell us about BioLogos and then uh, how you got to be uh, intertwined with BioLogos. Yeah, so BioLogos was founded by Francis Collins, who was the director of the Human Genome Project and then later became the director of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, just soon after the Human Genome Project had been finished, he started writing a book called The Language of God. It came out then in 20, 2006. And in response to that, uh, lots of people started asking follow-up questions uh, because here's this world-class scientist who then is telling his story of coming to Christian faith 
and trying to put those two together. So people were asking lots of follow-up things like, what about this? What about this? What about this? How do you reconcile these? And he quickly became overwhelmed with the volume of such questions and decided to put a team together who might write out some answers to frequently asked questions. And they did that and put them on a website and called it BioLogos. So that's how BioLogos got started. Um, just as the website was launching and preparing to go public was when President Obama tapped uh, Francis to become director of the NIH. And so he had to separate himself uh, legally from uh, this little fledgling nonprofit organization. And so uh, some of the other people who are involved uh, helped to, to get it going and turning it more into a, a legitimate organization that produces lots of resources on the website. And then we started having a speakers bureau of sending people around. Um, more recently, we've developed a uh, homeschool curriculum or for Christian high schools related to biology. We do a podcast ourselves, as you know, and uh, some of those kinds of things. So the, the primary presence of BioLogos began on the website and is still our website, biologos.org, where this year more than 2 million different people have, have visited. There's more than 2,000 separate pages under biologos.org with resources on all sorts of topics related to science and faith. Originally, those were primarily related to questions of origins, uh, age of the earth and universe, as well as evolution. Um, more recently, we've uh, also been talking a lot about uh, coronavirus and as well as creation care. So some other topics that um, we find uh, are important there at the intersection of science and our Christian faith. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Jim. And maybe just a, a little bit more, just uh, give our listeners the raison d'etre for BioLogos and also maybe a little bit about why Jim Stumpf, who I, uh, I'll presume was in a, quote, safe academic job, decided to go to, to this organization that was turning from Francis Collins's hobby horse to a real organization, which might be a little bit more risky. So <laughs> maybe unpack those two threads. Yeah, that's a kind of complicated story that ties in with uh, the state of American evangelicalism and its attitudes towards science. I... Um, Again, as I told you, I didn't really see a lot of personal conflict myself in, in science and religion, but know many people in communities for whom that was an issue. So I was finishing my PhD in Boston, and uh, the president of my uh, undergraduate institution called me up one day and said, Jim, we want to start a philosophy program. Would you come back and help to do that? I wasn't so sure that that was what I wanted to do. I had gone into graduate school thinking I'd go off to some big research university. After being at a couple of those during grad school, I did sort of long for the kind of uh, educational experience I had myself as an undergraduate at this small little Christian arts, Christian liberal arts school that doesn't have a stellar academic reputation, but it has competent faculty and people who were really interested in the development of, of their students, much more so than in the production of, of scholarship. But I came back and we did start a philosophy program and had uh, four philosophy professors that we came to like each other a lot, which was very different than the experience I saw among my uh, professors at some of these other institutions where I was. So it became a really nice community that we, that we enjoyed in that regard. 
at some point, I decided to start teaching a course called Logic and Critical Thinking using the origins controversy as the topic that we would think about logically and critically. I was uh, getting frustrated with hearing from former students that had left the faith because they got out of this little Christian bubble and found that the kinds of things they had heard, at least from some of the some of the people there, that they were supposed to think about science just didn't line up with their experience, and they didn't see how uh, this supposedly Christian view of of science or what they had been told was the biblical view could really be sustained when it came to more careful scrutiny. And they felt as though they had to choose then between their Christian faith in the guise in which it was presented to them or science and the, the world that, that we believe God has created and that is there for our investigation. I didn't like that people felt they had to choose between those two options. So I said, I'm going to start talking about this a little more openly and seriously. And so I did. And it was right about the same time that Deb had moved the organization to Grand Rapids and was looking for somebody in philosophy or theology who could help with some of the resources that they were developing there. And so we worked out a, an agreement that BioLogos bought out part of my teaching contract so that I was doing both of those. And this was with full uh, approval of the administration. I went to the president at the time and he said, this is great. I want us to be involved in these kinds of conversations. As I did that, though, and my name started being attached a little more uh, precisely to the work of BioLogos and to the positions that BioLogos defends, there were those in the wider community of the small evangelical college that thought that was problematic. And that became that became a bit of an issue, and it started a fairly lengthy process. Uh, if I'm honest, I'll say at times it felt like an inquisition that uh, culminated in my having to leave the college because I wanted to stay involved with Biologos and the work I was doing there. So the reason that Biologos exists played out very particularly in my own in my own life and in in the community that I was a part of that thought you cannot take what the best science of today is and wed it together with a serious Christian faith. You have to choose between those two things. So the work of Biologos and my own uh, scholarly work and the, the, the work that I do with Biologos now is directed to trying to show that that is a false dichotomy, that you do not have to choose between those two options. Fascinating. Fascinating. That's probably worth a separate discussion either on a podcast or a beer. But, uh, again, since my brother is an academician, I can understand uh, some of the uh, currents that go on. Uh, but before we get into that actual debate, uh, as you know, the Oak Guild Institute is not explicitly Christian. You have mentioned uh, you know, the Christian faith and evangelical part of the Christian faith. Um, uh, just for our listeners, um, we are all about seeking truth, uh, the founders of the Oak Guild Institute happen to be followers of Jesus, aka Christians, just in, in terms of context, before we dive in, into the debate. I'm going to pose a couple of thesis statements, and I'd like your reaction just to frame this science versus faith. Here are the thesis statements. At least today, um, many scientists, though not all, um, 
believe that uh, faith cannot be proved. So folks should dismiss faith. I mean, science can eventually get there. So that's thesis statement number one. Thesis statement number two, uh, at least in the United States, many Christians, including evangelical Christians that you refer to, believe science cannot be trusted. So if you take those two thesis statements, uh, how did we get here? Because if you look at uh, arguably Western civilization, and I'll just say Western, not because it's any better, but it happened to be at the right point in history when um, Christendom evolved and today's modern science evolved, um, many of the uh, scientists were actually people of faith. So how did we get to where we are today? Yeah, good question. And uh, just uh, just a word quickly about other religions besides Christianity. I think it's totally legitimate for other uh, religions and people of faith in those other traditions to be engaged in these same kinds of conversations and have interesting perspectives to bring. I uh, talk about what I know primarily, and that's my my own faith tradition within Christianity. But I do think that min- much of what we say here might might be uh, equally relatable to people of other of other traditions. How we got to this uh, state where it feels as though uh, lots of people within the sciences think that faith is some illegitimate practice or superstition, and lots of people in in faith traditions who are suspicious of science is a long and tangled story sociologically and as well as with the the truths that that come out of of these traditions scientific revolution as you as you uh note the development of science did occur within uh Western Europe primarily when it was still a Christian place. There's a really fascinating question about whether there was something about that time and place that necessitated that or whether this was just an accident of history that it could have been somewhere else. It's worth noting that you can go lots of other places in the world and find precursors of science and technology, especially in ways that were uh, far outpacing that of what you find in Europe. So in China and in India, um, there are long traditions of very sophisticated thinking and interaction with nature, but it somehow didn't develop there into the kinds of theories that drove the scientific revolution in Europe. And one part of that very well could have been that these uh, monotheists, these Christian monotheists who had an understanding of God as a personal being exists in some sense outside of the normal uh, sphere of causes and effects that they were studying, but was a personal being who created and as opposed to some of these other traditions that held the divine to be an impersonal force that was somehow just emanating. The world was just emanating from it in a necessary way. So for the Christians who thought that God is this personal being who created out of a pure act of love and of will rather than being necessitated, that means you have to go out and actually look to see how it turned out rather than being able to deduce that as a necessary consequence of an emanation of some sort. So there's at least some justification and encouragement there 
for uh, experimentation and observation. And that that's, a, a, again, a long and messy story because it's not nearly as straightforward as you sometimes see it in the, the elementary textbooks of, of how that happened. But I think there's something there in terms of the, the influence that Christianity really did have on some of those early thinkers. What happens, though, that I think we can connect some of the dots to this state that we're in today is that one of the reasons science became so successful in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries is it drastically narrowed the focus of what it was trying to do, what it was trying to explain. Science in the Middle Ages was a much broader enterprise, natural philosophy, it was called, right? And uh, looked to uncover the causes and the essences of everything, right? To provide this comprehensive explanation. And what people like Galileo and Kepler and then Newton, Descartes did so intentionally was to say, yeah, let's talk about the kinds of things that we can mathematize, the kinds of things that are amenable to a mathematical treatment that we can tease out. And that meant they had to leave a lot by the wayside and science became focused in on this one particular aspect of, of our experience. Now that became spectacularly successful. I mean, by the time you get to Newton and writing these laws of nature in precise mathematical formulas that explain not only how the planets go around the sun in the orbits that they do, but how cannonballs fall to the earth. And it just united these experiences in these really elegant mathematical formulae. So there's this spectacular success that as this tradition moves on, attaches an increasing kind of authority to scientific thinking. So if we, uh, fast forward the tape here to our present day, uh, we see that there's been a reversal of the positions of who has the authority within the culture. In the Middle Ages, it was the priests. The priestly class were the ones that said, this is how things work. This is what you have to do. Today, it's the scientists who have that kind of authority. What gets us into trouble what drives the kind of conflict from those two thesis statements you just made is when we don't recognize that the authority of science applies only to that sphere within which science properly operates. And we start letting science get to answer all of the questions. That's when religious people get, you know, rightfully a little bit nervous and upset. What do you mean science is saying there's no God? Science can't remotely say anything to that effect. And yet there are lots of pretty vocal scientists who claim on the authority of their scientific credentials to say just such things, right? The specialization of science limited it to a particular sphere, but the success of science gives it sort of this cultural cachet that think that makes some of its practitioners think that it can be the authority about everything. I think that's the recipe for for the tension that we find ourselves in today. Uh, fascinating. I, I feel like I'm back in college listening to Professor Stumps. <laughs> Actually, sincerely, thank you for that. Uh, so, uh, I'll give so, you a test at the end here. Uh, okay, well, but if I got you right, uh, there's the question of authority. The Life of the Mind podcast is from the Oak Guild Institute. At OGI, we seek truth from unique experiences and diverse perspectives. Listening and learning may lead to contested dialogue. 
We believe contested dialogue can still be loving and compassionate between those with opposing viewpoints. Oak Guild Institute is a fledgling organization with a podcast and salon-style conversations, bringing people together in person and online. Please visit oakguild.org, O-A-K-G-U-I-L-D dot O-R-G to learn more and get involved. If I got you right, uh, there's the question of authority. What happened on the uh, flip side that people who are uh, people of faith, uh, let's just say Christians, start to question science even in the areas where uh, it, it was staying within its domain of authority? Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that this is uh, a problem that is not unique, but uh, I think particularly apparent in America, uh, as opposed to many other places in the world where this has happened. And there's some reason for that too. And lots of people point back to 1925 and the Scopes Monkey Trial that really started this sort of uh, hostility between science and people of faith. The Scopes Trial, where somebody in Tennessee, uh, actually volunteered to be put on trial for teaching evolution within the classroom. And we had very prominent then lawyers, both for the prosecution and the defense, and it became a media circus. It became, you know, what the OJ Simpson trial was in the, the last part of the 20th century. That's what the Scopes trial was in the beginning of the century. People were, uh, there were correspondents from all over, from every major newspaper around. And what happened was the science side of that kind of made fun of the Christians. So Christians were concerned about evolution. They were concerned that what is this doing? Is it undermining the authority of the Bible? And the science side of that kind of poked, poked at that pretty hard. And it ended up driving a significant portion of kind of middle America, you know, we, we use these terms here now of middle America versus the coastal elites. And it just started these culture wars that we see so inflamed today that I think a, the root of that goes back to that episode and then to subsequent episodes where uh, people increasingly got the feeling that science was set up against religion, that science is when it was going to show how silly it was to hold to the literal truth of the Bible. And Christians then were saying who were, you know, in many cases, rightly offended and were committed to the authority of, of the Bible that we're going to say, well, if that's the way science is going, then I guess we can't trust them anymore. We're going to. So, you know, obviously this is a bit of a caricature of all of that, but I think that's a, a major part that that ended up fueling the culture wars in America, where science is on one side of that war and religion is on the other. We see that played out today in politics, where religion is so, Christian religion is so tightly wedded to one political party, and science is pretty tightly wedded to the other political party. And so people just take these as package deals. For us at Biologos, we feel like we've got a foot in both camps as we're trying to hold on to both rigorous science as well as biblical faith. And so that kind of puts us in no man's land sometimes between the culture wars. But that's, uh, that's I think, the reality, at least in broad strokes of, uh, of where this tension comes from. 
uh, I would like to get into the COVID-19, but just a comment on that again. Thank you, Jim. Uh, having uh, Being a first-generation immigrant to the States coming from the land of India, but raised in a Christian tradition, uh, this does seem to be an American situation more than other parts of the world. Uh, but I find it interesting that uh, arguably the 20th century was the American century. And if America was founded on ideas and ideals, it, it, irrespective of the faith background, what propelled America uh, was technology. Uh, it just seems ironic that uh, what brought America, at least in worldly terms, to its preeminence is, is what's being questioned. So uh, just, just a commentary. And when you talk to even Christians who are opposing the the scientific consensus of the day, they're not going to say they're anti-science. They love science. But what they say is you have to understand science uh, as what we mean by science, which starts with the Bible and their scientific principles, their scientific conclusions even are drawn from specific interpretations of the Bible. So they're going to say, yeah, we can continue to use technology. That's fine. That's not in conflict with our commitment to scripture somehow. It's only when you start espousing theories that go against their sacred cows within the interpretation of particular texts of scripture that gets them into trouble. Well, then let's talk about vaccines. You know, I was born in India in a hospital started by uh, the daughter of an American missionary who went and got her medical degree to serve the women. It's Western medicine, arguably Western, because let's just say it's an accident of history, but provided vaccines against bacterial diseases and then in time viral diseases, um, malaria, cholera, smallpox, etc. Um, so the whole notion of vaccine hesitancy uh, just didn't even enter um, my cosmos growing up or even when I moved to the States in, in ninth grade. Uh, but yet we see that right now. Uh, all, all the way from taking credit for vaccine development to hesitancy to vaccine. Where does that leave us in terms of public health? And, and is there hope, Jim, before, before we move on? I've just been uh, writing an article for the Biologos website about hope. And in it, I try to defend the view that you can still have hope, even if you're not very optimistic, because I'm not very optimistic most days after I uh, watch the news and, and hear the stories, the kinds of things you were just talking about. I think hope is different than that. I don't think hope is in at least our hope in uh, Christ is not dependent on outcomes nearly as, as much as it is a commitment to a way of seeing things, a commitment to, uh, understanding the bigger picture that that we believe the Christian story tells us. So I think we can have hope. The vaccine issue, I think, is really fascinating from at least if you talk about it from a detached point of view instead of the personal stories that all of us are enmeshed in. Because before, before uh, COVID, the anti-vax community did not track nearly so much with Christianity. The anti-vax communities was spread across the spectrum. There were some very conservative people on the political spectrum that way, but there were also very far left people on the political spectrum that were anti-vaccine. And so since uh, since COVID started, though, and here again, we've got these scientists trying to push on us. Here's what we've uh, said we all ought to do. 
And there was just this knee-jerk reaction. I mean, at the beginning of COVID, many of us at Biologos thought, here is an opportunity where Christians are going to rally around science now and say, within this particular sphere, we need to listen to the scientists. We need to trust science about scientific questions. And this is one of them. How can we be most safe from this virus? And we were actually optimistic that this might this might happen. And it hasn't. It's gone the exact opposite way, where it has become Christians who are the most vocal in rejecting uh, the science of, of what's been shown definitively has been shown to be the best way of protecting ourselves against this. So there again, it just became a culture war issue. It became politicized where uh, in the halls of Congress, it was which party was hoping to blame the other one the most for the biggest problems and which one of those parties were you going to line up behind? And for whatever reason, Christians have increasingly lined up behind Republicans who were increasingly not on the side of, of science and had to, you know, the, the people in our churches had to make a choice. Were they going to stay with their tribe or were they going to go out and, and uh, stand up for what they believe the truth to be in this regard? And it's very depressing to see the numbers of Christians who have been caught up in the rhetoric and the misinformation. Dive into this thing as a philosophy of science professor. Um, as I understand the scientific method, you mentioned authority. You know, science becomes the authority in areas uh, that uh, uh, where its principles apply. But it seems to me that before it becomes an authority, there's a process of discovery and hypotheses and theories, and and after these theories are tested and and and, and so on and so forth, it can claim to have some authority. And what uh, appears to be happening with the COVID-19 pandemic and the different variants is we're seeing the uncertainty at the early start. And there has to be discovery before there's authority. And people seem to want authority. And that's not even science because you just am I I reading that wrong? No, I think you're absolutely right that uh, we have seen the scientific process playing out with regard to vaccines, with regard to masks, where there are changes to the conclusions that are made based on new data that comes in. That's a little too nuanced to fit into bullet points in a news program where most people are just going, they can't make up their minds. Science just keeps changing. Why in the world should we trust them? When this is the exact process, according to which science has legitimately gained authority in these areas, that it is going to keep on testing, that any conclusion that's put forth is provisional until further data comes in, until more research can be can be done. But there is some point at which we say enough data has come in that we can confidently, you know, say this is the this is the right way to, to see this. I mean, you think historically, we're not going to go back to thinking that the earth is flat. We're not going to go back to thinking that the earth is the center of the universe and everything goes around us. These were these were vigorous matters of debate at some time. But science over time really does figure some things out. You know, that's not that's not a uh, a conclusion that's going to be up for revision. But when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the midst of that process, there's lots of revision that happens. And we have to uh, allow that process to keep going. Thanks, Jim. 
That was great. Before we get to the final segment, one that has me intrigued, I want to have some fun with you, okay? <laughs> Uh-oh. It seems on the science versus Christian faith debate, the extremes can be characterized by things like evolution, i.e. the Scopes monkey trial, or the fundamentalist position on young earth creation, i.e. we take the whole Bible literally and the earth is only 6,000 years old. Recently, though, there have been other organizations like yours for example, the Discovery Institute out of Seattle. These organizations also try to bridge the gap between science and Christian faith. Unlike Biologos, however, these organizations, it seems to me, try to prove God using the scientific method, as well as posit that God intervenes distinctly during gaps in the cosmological, but more often the evolutionary continuum. You folks at Biologos claim God is not the God of the gaps. Care to comment? Yeah, lots of commentary, I suspect. Um, but you said we were having fun, right? So I won't turn it into a, a long discourse. Biologos, yes, there are a number of science and faith organizations in, in the States. Biologos is the, the one, or at least the most prominent one of, of those that says we are taking the findings of contemporary science, we're, we're not challenging those in the sense that we're doing our own research somewhere. We're saying, okay, this is what science has found. These are the best conclusions that science has right now. We're going to accept that as the scientific view of things. We're also taking the historic Christian faith as a given. That's not something that we're challenging in any way. So then it's our, our uh, attempt to try to show how those fit together. Uh, some of the other well-known science organizations have said, no, we're going to challenge what contemporary science says. And they claim uh, to have to, that their view is a properly scientific one. And if that's the case, I think the answer is, all right, let's see the results. Let's see how it wins out in the, the marketplace of ideas, because that's the way science works. You put your ideas out there and they get critiqued and the best ones are going to survive. And yes, in the short time, there are all sorts of other influencing factors that, that play into that. But over the long term, I think that the truth wins out. That's the, you know, that's the, the premise of your institute there, right? That the truth will come to light. Uh, the difference between us and intelligent design. Now, I'm not going to quite accept the way you characterized us. God intervenes is one that I think takes a little more unpacking and nuance. I think God is constantly involved in the workings of the world. I don't like the view that says, okay, if I can explain it with science, that means God must just be sitting back twiddling his thumbs, waiting until the next big moment where he steps into the process and intervenes in some dramatic way. I think God is constantly involved. And I, this is not an official view of, bio, of Biologos. There would be people within my own tribe that, that would uh, disagree with me in characterizing it this way. But I think the best way to understand it is we have a scientific view. We have a scientific explanation for certain events. And we have theological explanations for certain events. And having one of those views does not mean the other one is illegitimate. It's, a it's, a, it's an explanation at a different level or a different perspective. You might think of it, lots of times people use the metaphor of maps. You might take a map of the Bay Area out there where you are that shows topography. And that would 
extract and pull out one kind of information about the reality. You might also have a population density map that you pull out and look and show, and it shows a different set of information and trains you to look at different facets of reality. I think in lots of ways, science and theology are like that, that neither of them are comprehensive explanation. And lots of times, they don't even really have much interaction with each other. It doesn't matter very much for most scientists who are sitting at their lab benches doing the minutiae work of understanding some little part of the created order and how it works better. It just doesn't matter to them which theory of the atonement you're going to espouse, right? That's not going to affect them. And the in the other direction, it doesn't matter for us in attempting to understand the Trinity how photosynthesis works or nuclear reactors work. You know, those are very different domains. So it's only a few of the questions where these are brought into direct sort of conversation. One of those might be human origins to say, where did we come from? And there I'm committed to saying, theologically, God created human beings and God created them in his image. I think that's a true theological statement. But I'm also committed to saying, I think the best scientific explanation for how human, for how homo sapiens came to be is the theory of evolution, our common ancestry with other life forms. Now it's a question, how do I relate those two statements? How do they interact? Where do I find the touch points? And I like to think of it as a dialogue now between these two different disciplines. And I'm attempting to give some greater more unified and coherent view by listening to these two different these two different perspectives that we have on that. So anyway, I could go on uh, and on further about those sorts of things, but that's my initial kind of reaction to say I I don't want to limit God's activity to only the times when science doesn't have an explanation for something. Um, uh, thank you for that perspective, Jim. And actually, let's. Let's uh, spend the rest of our time going exactly where you start alluded to human beings made in the image of God. But on this whole thing where, uh, where the two worlds somehow need to be explained, you put Biologos, with you being one of the prime movers, puts out a podcast called, called The Language of God. You've had guests like Jane Goodall, Francis Collins, and so on. Um, but within that series, and I, you know, I think you may have be up to sixty or eighty podcasts. I'm, I'm not sure if the the, the ninety eight came out nine, today actually. As ninety eight, but there's a. I stumbled on a, and you're typically interviewing somebody else, but I stumbled on a gem, where you and one of your colleagues, Colin Hugerworth, put together a six part series on on human beings. Are we uniquely unique? Uh, and that, I guess, is um, going back to the philosophy part. You know, I think most cultures, most people would, even if uh, we can't explain it, say human beings are unique. And uh, Colin and you get into that. So could you just tell our listeners what, uh, what motivated the creation of that series for the people who are producing the podcast to be the subjects, et cetera? And, uh, and just unpack it a little bit and talk about what, what you hope to achieve with it. Sure. Thanks. Um, so COVID is responsible for this series, <laughs> I guess we might say. We had, Biologos had a grant 
um, to talk about human identity, where in which we brought together scholars from a number of dis different disciplines for uh, like workshop days to talk about what does it mean to be human from the perspective of these different disciplines. So anthropology and psychology, as well as biology and archaeology and evolutionary biology. And then we had theologians in the room, uh, too, to talk about this. Let's get this group of people together to talk about what does it mean to be human, both from the perspective of the sciences, as well as from the perspective of Christian theology. And then let's get this group to interact with some uh, prominent faith leaders in our culture to talk about uh, this perspective on human beings and, and human identity. So we had done a couple of these workshops and we're just uh, getting ready to set up some of the big public events where we'd have onstage conversations with, with some prominent faith leaders to talk about this because we thought this would be a way that was a little less threatening than to just say, talk about human origins or evolution. Let's talk about what it means to be human, to be created in the image of God, but then let all of these different perspectives have a, have a voice and give, give their answer to that. And then COVID happened and we couldn't do the, the, the big splashy public events and so we went back to our granting agency and said, well, we can't do this now. How about if instead we do a series of podcasts where we talk about this same question? We already have connections with all of these scholars from different disciplines. So we'll just record some conversations with them and make a podcast series about it. And our grantors were very generous and said, yep, that sounds fine. So that's, that's how this got started. Um, it was really fun to put together. As you say, most of the time for our podcast episodes, it's me sitting talking to somebody for an hour like we're doing right here. This one instead, we modeled a little bit more after like This American Life or those kind of NPR podcasts that try to tell a story. And so, yeah, my producer, Colin, uh, who normally sits in the control booth and just messes with all the dials and things, we brought him out in front of the microphone so that he and I would talk a little bit uh, together and kind of explore these topics and then bring in bring in these uh, disciplinary experts to help illustrate or make points along the way. So that was the that was the genesis of of that series. And I'll tell you, it takes a lot more work to do those than to just sit and talk to somebody for an hour. But it was also a lot of fun and I think uh, worthwhile in the, the kinds of topics we talked about, the people we talked about, the conclusions we came to, if you can call them conclusions, but at least the insights we brought in what does it mean to be human? So yes, we called it uniquely unique. You know, we started with the question, are humans unique? And pretty quickly you say, well, yes, of course we're unique. That's why we're a different species. But then every other species is also unique when you think of it that way. So the question was, yeah, but aren't we unique in a way that's different from the way everything else is unique? So that's why uh, we ended up using that phrase uniquely unique to talk about that. And all throughout, there's a tension. We get pulled in different directions all the time about seeing our uniqueness, our difference from everything else, but then also seeing our continuity with the rest of life on planet. So I think there's a tension that runs throughout that, that whole series that we try to capture both sides of that all the time. Oh, and, uh, thank you for that. And I will say just as a, uh, a person who went to college and just focused on technology and engineering, uh, I wish I'd had uh, 
that as a course. Uh, it was just fabulous. And I uh, arguably, even though you are and I am um, follow the Christian faith, uh, at least the Judeo-Christian, even Islamic traditions, there's nothing in that that would oppose those faith traditions and arguably even some of the other ones, you know. Uh, so I, I, I think it's a, really a classic. So props to you and your colleague, uh, Colin, Thank for you. putting that together. Right? Yeah, that thanks was- so much. Well, Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, as we wrap up, <laughs> I want to wish you and your family and all of BioLogos blessings in that sense. And uh, thank you. You have enlightened me, Jim. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jim and Jake, for using your time, energy, and intellect to seek truth on this topic. I enjoyed how you span many spheres of discussion from the history of philosophy of modern science to its Christian influence then and to hot-button topics of today. As they discussed, the Christianity versus science conflict is not a clean divide. More than half of U.S. scientists believe in God or a higher power, according to 2009 Pew Research Study. Even young Earth creationists who dismiss the evidence of an older Earth use scientific methods to try to prove their own point. No one seems to be denying the importance of science. In fact, many who refused to get the COVID vaccine were not against vaccines in general, but opposed to the government requiring this new vaccine for them to go to work. And while 30 to 40 percent of white evangelicals refused to be vaccinated, 60 to 70 percent did get the jab or multiple jabs. So what I learned by listening to Jake and Jim is that the real conflict lies where so many human conflicts do, and that is power. It's the notion of authority. It's about who is the authority and on which domains of expertise, and for what purpose? And when is a certain authority trying to go beyond its particular domain of expertise? I hope this podcast got you thinking about the source of debates and how not to assume the reasons behind others' viewpoints. And if you want, please continue this dialogue with friends and family. Whether it's about vaccines or teaching evolution or a newer, hotter topic than that, there are often a tangle of reasons for and fear behind each of our opinions. Listening is the key to learning. And remember, Our complex opinions often cannot be summarized neatly or compassionately in a social media post. So please be careful with what you say and how you say it online. More info about BioLogos can be found at biologos.org and the Language of God podcast. Finally, I'll end with a quote from Jim Stump. You can still have hope even if you're not very optimistic. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. Remember, it's always okay to respectfully and lovingly disagree with ideas and interpretations of events you listen to here or get from other sources. Through reflection and loving open dialogue, we seek truth and compassion. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and visit oakguild.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation. Mm-hmm.